Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Jaws and its film score were a massive success, in spite of all of the problems behind the scenes. This was due in no small part to the tremendous instincts and experience of composer John Williams. Together, Steven Spielberg and Williams created a movie that changed cinema and popular culture forever. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins. This episode marks our first deep dive into a film score, providing an analysis and background that's meant to deepen our love for and understanding of a soundtrack that has had a major impact on us as listeners and on the musical and artistic world in general. Today, we're talking about Jaws, a film from Universal Pictures in 1975. Ah, 1975. What's the significance? Why start there? Well, with so much to cover, it's a bit like tacking a pin somewhere onto a giant map. I mean, we have to start somewhere. And 1975 is significant because it marks, at least in my opinion, the dawn of our modern geek culture, of movie blockbusters, certainly, and of that roaring return of the classic Hollywood film score and the style known today as neoclassicism. And, well, it's also the year your host, yours truly, was born. 1975. Yeah, the world was dramatically different in 75 than it is today, certainly. It's interesting to think about how our world changes at an exponential rate. I mean, every decade brings us new changes. Social media, streaming and digital downloads, internet, email. I mean, these things are relatively new to mainstream culture. Relatively, I said. I mean, I remember I sent my first email in 1995 when I was 20 years old across the uh, computer lab in my college library. I was blown away at the time. Does that make me sound old? Yeah, probably. Okay, well, that's good perspective. Let's go back another 20 years from there. And we have 1975. The Betamax was first introduced in 1975. Uh, Microsoft was founded as a company in 1975. Pet Rocks and Moon Rings were all the rage. Pong and the $6 million man action figures were the biggest Christmas presents. Mick Jagger, it, he was age 33 at the time, proclaimed, quote, I'd rather be dead than still be singing Satisfaction at age 45. Ha ha ha. Saturday Night Live debuted in 75. McDonald's slogan was born. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Minimum wage back then was $2.10 per hour. An oil change was $4.19. And the world's population was under 4 billion people. Wheel of Fortune debuted on NBC and American Express advised us, don't leave home without it. More importantly, the Vietnam War finally ended. Two years prior to that, the U.S. was rocked by the Watergate scandal and the resignation of U.S. President Richard Nixon. The home computer was practically non-existent. We were many years away from even the Atari 2600, and it was a world that didn't even know about Star Wars. I mean, this world sounds, in retrospect today, far removed from our world. Almost alien in a way. And then there is Jaws. Before Jaws... Summertime was considered, believe it or not, a dead period at the box office. After Jaws, the blockbuster, the tentpole film, was born. Jaws opened on June 25th, 1975, and was a massive, massive hit. It was heavily marketed and open to a very wide audience for its time. And, of course, it scared the living heck out of audiences who delighted with its thrills, all the thrills and chills it had to offer. So what does this have to do with the soundtrack show? Well, I think it's important to know just how huge this film was and still is because the story behind the success is actually one of near disaster. 
Steven Spielberg, the film's director, who was only in his 20s when he directed Jaws, shot on location in Martha's Vineyard, on the ocean. The film went way over schedule and way over budget. But out of this disaster, a film and a film soundtrack emerged that changed movies forever. The movie is uh, based on the novel by Peter Benchley, and it's about a small island called Amity in New England, whose whole economy on this island is based around the summer months, the the beautiful beaches, the tourist season, 4th of July, etc. So I'll quickly go down uh, the plot of this movie, and it goes something like this. Um, a young girl is, is basically found dead after a shark attack. Um, you know, her remains are found on the beach, and the coroner says it's a shark attack. So our hero, the Chief Brody, decides to close down the beaches. The mayor overrules it. There's a cover-up because he's worried about the economy. Um, but then a second death happens because of the shark, and suddenly you have all these amateur shark hunters wanting to uh, basically find the shark. Although there was le- one legitimate offer in there from a, uh, a local shark hunting professional named Quint, who says he will uh, offer his services for $10,000, a lot of money back then. Uh, and meanwhile, there's this consulting oceanographer named Matt Hooper, who's played by Richard Dreyfus, who basically examines the remains of the first shark attack and says, no, 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 this was not a boating accident like the cover-up. This was done by a shark, an unusually large one. So, of course, the amateurs go out and they catch a tiger shark and they and they proclaim the beach is safe. Of course, it's not the right shark. I mean, it's not the same predator. And, uh, you know, Hooper goes in and, and realizes there's no human remains found inside the shark. Um, and they go searching uh, f- this vessel underwater and they find this sizable great white shark's tooth. But they also find... Uh, body parts down there, and so they lose the tooth, and the mayor doesn't believe them, and he keeps them open on Fourth of July weekend, and wouldn't you know it, another death happens. So, of course, they hire Quint, who is the professional shark hunter, and he and Chief Brody and Hooper, the oceanographer, set out on Quint's boat, the Orca, and there's this whole shark chase, uh, and they try and capture the shark, and of course, the shark takes revenge by attacking at night. He knocks out the power of the boat. Quint goes a little crazy for personal reasons, which we won't get into until a little bit later, but he smashes the radio when Chief Brody tries to call for help, and essentially, they're all stranded out there. Uh... They they shoot more barrels into the boat. They're trying to or into the shark. They're trying to slow the shark down. But actually, what the shark ends up doing is pulling the back of the boat under the water, sinking the boat. Quinn gets eaten. Hooper uh, tries to attack it with strychnine and a spear in a cage, fails, and eventually Chief Brody kills the shark by shooting a pressurized oxygen tank that's stuck in the shark's mouth with a rifle. Uh, the shark gets blown to bits, and they swim home to safety. The end. For Steven Spielberg, he was determined to see this movie shot in the ocean. It couldn't be done in a tank on a studio backlot. It needed to feel real. Here's a quote. This is Steven Spielberg. I have a little clip here of, of uh, Spielberg talking about filming on location. I remember when Steven was in production on Jaws, the word around town and in the LA Times was that it was uh, folly and that it was going to be a disaster. That was Scorsese talking about the making of Jaws. Guys, we can't shoot right now. Hold on. This is my second day at sea. Here's a young Steven Spielberg. And I have 54 more days to go. On a boat. And if I survive this, uh, I'll have learned a lot. Because right now, all I can tell you is uh, it's, it's twice as slow shooting at sea as it is shooting on land. Well, the studio had never shot a film on the ocean before. They would do it on the back lake. They would do it in a studio tank. They would make miniature boats. They would, everything would be so easy that you would never get cold or wet. But Stephen said, I'm going to shoot in the open ocean. This was supposed to be a thriller based on people like you and me that are out of our element and having to fight something we have no comprehension how to deal with. That needs a level of authenticity that I thought shooting it in the back lot of Universal in North Hollywood would not give it. There it so is. So to me, there was no going back. It had to be shot in the ocean. So going for authenticity, going for realism, he took on the elements of the ocean. I thought it was going to be a cakewalk, but I didn't know anything about tides or currents. I didn't know about how the wind affects the water, how the color of the sky changes the color of the water, or how you can't get anything to match. It was one nightmare, worst-case scenario after the other. I didn't think we'd ever finish. I just assumed I'd be fired off the picture. 
We were isolated in the middle of the ocean, 12 miles offshore. And it was technology over art every single day. We'd get a shot, art was there, but you couldn't recognize the art from the effort. Just trying to hold a whole movie story in my head is a very lonely thing, because nobody can really help me with that. I have to see it before I film it. And that's why it was so scary on Jaws, when I couldn't see it until I finally did. Just before I went off to make Jaws, I got to meet Henry Hathaway. He was kind of a tough guy director. And he said, there's going to be moments where you're going to get to the set, and you're not going to know what the hell you're doing. It happens to all of us. You've got to guard that secret with your life. Let no one see when you're unsure of yourself. Hide that from everybody, or you'll lose the respect of everyone. Wow. It's interesting, again, by today's standards to think about this, a studio with no experience shooting in the elements, shooting on boats with tides and currents and drift and uh, shots not matching. Of course, nowadays with, uh, with uh, what's called digital intermediary or DI, you have the ability to color correct everything digitally. Back then, you didn't. You had, to, you had this thing called color timing, but you know he's trying to match things together. He's got uh, all of these different elements and technology working against him. He's shooting out in the ocean, out in the real ocean. And we haven't even talked about the mechanical shark. So in terms of you know hearing this story and you think about visual effects, of course they need a shark. And while there is one sequence in the movie that features footage of a real shark, they needed a terrifying giant great white. So, at great expense, they had a mechanical one built as a practical effect. This giant lumbering mechanism with gears and electronics, hydraulics inside, on location, in the water, in the ocean. You can see where the problems began. Uh, here, is, here are some clips actually talking about what went wrong with the shark. Let's listen to this. That's a much maligned shark, and I'm kind of responsible for creating the, a lot of the bad-mouthing about the shark because the shark was frustrating. It, it didn't really work all the time. It didn't work hardly at all. I remember in particular being on, a, uh, on our barge watching the first shark test. This is producer David Brown. At which Brown. time the shark simply sank to the bottom of Nantucket Sound, Oof. and we felt that our careers in motion pictures had gone with it. Frogmen were delegated to re recover it and bring it back to the surface. Everything that could go wrong with a shark went wrong, with the various sharks, the various types, head, fin, tails. The ocean was so brutal on the mechanics. All the Actor Roy tubes, all of that uh, uh, special uh, equipment was being dashed and, and, and brutalized by the ocean every day. There were all these radio mics Richard all Dreyfus. over the island. Were, you know, the, the universal radio mics. So wherever you were on the island, you could hear the radio mics. And they were always saying, the shark is not working, the shark is not working. Repeat, the shark is not working. No matter where you were, and for months. We just waited around. We just waited and waited and waited. And I remember every day, about the 50th or 60th day of shooting, the crew would come over to me, and they'd all ask me during the day, when are we going to be done with this movie? And I would honestly say to them, with complete sympathy for the question, I don't know. Here's another clip of Steven Spielberg and crew talking about the shark woes, the shark not working. Here you can actually hear the hydraulics of the shark. And action, Roy. Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. You ought to come down and ladle some of this. And here's the shark going back and forth. Listen to those hydraulics as it goes left and right and then down back Absolutely into the water. Everything was falling apart. The first time we tested the shark, it sunk. We'd come up out of the water and go, Richard Dreyfus, like that. I knew that it's going to take three or four weeks to rebuild the shark. And so we'd have to make up something else that didn't exactly show the shark, but gave the sense the shark was near. The barrels were a godsend because I didn't need to show the shark as long as those barrels were around. What you don't see is, is generally scarier than what you do see. And, this, and, the, and the script was filled with shark, shark here, shark there, shark everywhere. The, the, the movie doesn't have very much shark in it.
if the shock had been available visually, it might have changed the whole psychology of the, of the experience. Ah, that was John Williams there at the end, talking about how the shark was not available, and maybe that would have been a good thing. We're going to come back to that idea, but I want to talk first about what Steven Spielberg meant by these barrels, these barrels being a godsend. For those of you that have uh, seen the movie, you know, they didn't have a shark to shoot, so they came up with this plot of shooting these uh, barrels at the shark in order to get it to slow down. So much of the shark chase in the big action sequences of the movie is the uh, crew uh, on board the Orca chasing after these yellow barrels that are just basically skimming the surface of the ocean because there was no shark to shoot. So they were devising all of these clever, clever workarounds right? As I mentioned before, this film went way over schedule, which means it went way over budget. So this is the most fascinating part of all this. Spielberg, in his young genius, worked around it, worked around the fact that his shark was constantly not working. With no shark to shoot, plans had to change. And so he did this in a few clever ways, and I'm going to break them, break them down here. Number one, he shot footage of the aforementioned barrels being dragged through the water. Even though we don't see the shark, we know it's there because of the barrels. The speed at which they move is terrifying. Our imagination's doing all the work. Number two, in one scene, the shark is represented by a floating piece of wooden dock, which the shark is presumably dragging back toward the fishermen that it's trying to attack as they desperately try to climb out of the water. Again, no shark on camera, but somehow we know it's there, and it's terrifying. Number three, he shoots a simple dorsal fin that breaks the surface of the water, which by itself isn't all that threatening. Yet, in context, it's terrifying. And lastly, he shoots underwater photography as if it's from the shark's point of view, swimming closer to human legs, treading below the surface. And as it moves, albeit slowly, through the watery depths, it is terrifying. Why? Why is it terrifying? Why do all of these improvised techniques work so well? What do they all have in common? You guessed it. The music. In the year 2000, Spielberg said this about John Williams' score for Jaws. You know what? Actually, I'm going to let him say it. Let's take a listen to this. And without that score, to this day, I believe the film would have only been half as successful. I think the score was clearly responsible for half the success of that movie. I'm just going to repeat that. I think that his score, John Williams' score, was clearly responsible for half of the success of that movie. In many ways, Jaws, the 25-foot great white shark, is the music. The music is Jaws. Spielberg provides the setup. He's us. He's the audience. He's the one setting up the scares, building the tension. But it's clear that John Williams' score is the shark. We all know the theme that signals the arrival of the shark, but let's let's listen to the main theme now. I mean, this is very, very, very famous, but let's let's talk about this. Let's get this right out of the way here. First, there's this. This is actually from the very beginning of the film. One note turns into two notes. Very slow. And then a little more. There's two pulses and then more. What's coming? Oh, there it is. Momentum. Momentum. Oh, and a second melody comes in. And these hits. And it's getting faster, and it's getting louder. Now bigger as the strings come in, in a very psycho-esque way. Bigger and bigger and bigger. Let's break down what John Williams has done here. We, of course, have the rhythmic, what they call ostinato or pattern, or the two to three notes representing the shark. Uh, they go like this. We all know that it's very, very famous. But it's not just about those notes. It's about how they're used. Here's John Williams talking about these two notes. One could alter the speed of this ostinato. It could be note, 
note, note, note, any kind of alteration of speed to, to very slow, very fast, very soft, very loud. All these things could manipulate the, the moment to, to illustrate that the shark was at the highest pitch of frenzy or something lower. And this simple dramatic device seemed to be what we needed. So he could use tempo or speed to indicate how close or far away the shark was. So if it was far away, it was just... just very slow. And as it got closer... you'd hear it speed up, um, you would, that would indicate how close or far away the shark was. This is classic, this is a classic horror trope. This is the classic, the call is coming from inside the house. The music's telling you that your killer is much closer to you than you realize. We hear it, the audience hears it, the victims on screen do not. He could also use loudness, playing loudly when it is close and thickening up the orchestra to an almost psycho-like frenzy. We, uh, we heard that a little bit. We heard that right here. Or softness as the shark went away. While the textures can remind us of Bernard Herrmann's psycho score, the genius of focusing on the shark with just two notes, I actually think is daringly simple. This idea of characterizing the shark musically, these low thumping ostinato notes in the bass, you know, were the result of a very simple idea that I had, that I thought that the, that the, the, the shark should be represented by something in sound or in music, probably music, because there's no sound underneath the water, we thought. Daringly simple. Today you might do it with sound effects, but I thought maybe some kind of driving thing in the bottom of the orchestra might indicate this, the, the, the mindless attack of the shark. It's all instinct. There's no, there's not, no real intelligence behind it. It's, it's, a, it's an unstoppable, bum, 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 this thing comes at you, and whatever, you, you can't fight it off without destroying it because of its, this relentless drive that it has. Here's Steven Spielberg talking about the first time he heard John Williams playing the theme for Jaws on the piano. When he finally played the music for me on the piano, he previewed the main Jaws theme. I expected to hear something kind of weird and melodic, you know, and kind of tonal but eerie and of another world, almost a bit like outer space, inside, you know, inner space under, under the water. And, and what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was dun, 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 dun. And at first I began to laugh. I thought he was, he had a great sense of humor. I thought he was putting me on. And, and he said, no, that's the theme that draws. And I said, play it again. He played it again. And he played it again. And it suddenly seemed right. But when I first heard it, it seemed wrong because it just seemed too simple. And... So, so simple. Uh, uh, often the best ideas are the simplest ones. And John found a signature for the entire movie. Well, what else is going on here besides the simplicity of those two notes? I mean, you have the two notes, right? But you have this other melody that's being played in a key that sits right next door. This counter melody in dissonance with the shark. Here's the main melody here. And then this other thing happens. These two melodies, I mean, they start, one is an E and one's an E flat. They're in direct clash of each other. This is polytonality, uh, 20th century writing at its best. This is two different tonal centers operating because this on its own, I mean, I mean, it almost sounds jazzy, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it sounds like it, it, it's, 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 uh, it's when it's played against this that you feel this tension. I mean, if it was here, it wouldn't be the same. Instead, it's played here. 
And that creates this tremendous tension, something totally unsettling. We talked a few episodes ago about how there is natural uh, tension, consonance and dissonance, that there is actually a mathematical relationship between things that sound pleasing. And this is a great example of something that is discordant, displeasing to the ear to let us know that something's wrong. When placing this ostinato a little higher, there is this tremendous tension, right? By placing it here and placing that there. It's as if this it's taking over the other theme or like it's it's swallowing it. You know, this other theme almost feels like a warning, more like a by, a bystander that is aware of the danger, almost like the ocean itself, the layer between the shark and us who live on the surface, its victims. It's it's it really is kind of the ocean's theme and it doesn't live in total harmony and and peace. This is not a peaceful uh, uh, shark. This is a killing machine. This tension, this play of themes in contrast to each other, the light, the darkness. This is what John Williams weaves so brilliantly throughout this score. Even when it's dark, you have this other theme fighting it. Had the shark worked, it would have been a completely different movie, as John Williams said. It begs the question, would we even still be talking about Jaws today? The breakdown of that shark is perhaps the single most important malfunction, happy accident, lemonade out of lemon story in the history of Hollywood because it forced Jaws to become about the psychology of the unknown. This professional disaster provided us with a genius end result. Well, more to the story, obviously, than just the breaking down of the shark. And that story is the genius of John Williams. He didn't arrive at his ability to create a score that's this clever, this dynamic, overnight. Before writing Jaws or Star Wars or Close Encounters, E.T., Superman, Raiders, etc., it may surprise us to know that he had composed dozens of films and hundreds of episodes of television. His journey to the final product that is this movie, Jaws, is equally important to the soundtrack show. It's filled with fascinating and sometimes heartbreaking detail. And when we study it together here on this podcast, we see a person who in his early 40s, which is how old he was when he wrote Jaws, had the talent and technique to make a film score like this even possible. So what follows now is a brief biography of John Williams' early life. And I trust you'll find the details to be fascinating as this man's art is a huge part of our lives as listeners. And now for a brief intermission. And now, back to the soundtrack show. John Towner Williams was born in New York on February 8, 1932. His father, John Williams, was a member of the CBS Orchestra. Young Johnny Williams learned to play clarinet, uh, bassoon, trumpet, trombone, and cello before finally deciding that he would focus on the piano as his main serious instrument. Though he was born in New York, he spent much of his youth in Los Angeles. He went to North Hollywood High School, which is, coincidentally, it's five miles up the street from where I'm recording this podcast. I drive by it every time I go to a recording session in Burbank. Anyway, in high school, he started doing school band arrangements of popular songs for his high school band. It's there that he got his first experiences in arranging. Arranging is when you take a song and you arrange it for the instruments at hand and and create something uh, new and unique and special for your particular band or ensemble or even orchestra. Coincidentally, this is also where he met his future wife, Barbara Ruick, though they wouldn't be romantically involved until years later. He was also taking private lessons at the time and eventually, after high school, started studying at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Then he was drafted into the Air Force. In the Air Force, he was stationed in Newfoundland in Canada, where he also played in the Air Force Band. He continued to show incredible skill as an arranger, so much so that he was eventually asked to score a tourism movie called All Are Welcome. This was to be his first ever film score. His Air Force career ended in 1955, and he had to decide between composing, arranging, or playing the piano, which was a passion of his. He still wanted to be a concert pianist, so he moved to New York and studied piano at the Juilliard School. And while he was at Juilliard, he played in local jazz bands and clubs throughout New York. 
It was at Juilliard that he came to a sobering conclusion. He was listening to his classmates play, some younger than he was. He took a hard look at their talent, their ability, their technique, and compared it with his own. At that point, he thought, well, if that's what the competition is, maybe I should be a composer. Uh, you know, I relate to this story really strongly. Side, side story here. I, I arrived at Berklee College of Music in the fall of 97 thinking I was a pretty hot drummer. And, you know, I'd had experience in other instruments, but I thought, you know, let me put my best foot forward with drums. And when I arrived, to my horror, I realized I was one of over 400 drummers of that, in that school. That was a very sobering experience. So for John Williams, this was an important realization and a monumentally important step for all of us and for the world of film music. So in 1956, he moved back to Los Angeles. He married actress Barbara Ruick and began supporting his young family by playing as a pianist in the Columbia Pictures Orchestra. Now, this is fascinating. This is where his career really began. He played piano under such legendary composers at the time, like Adolf Deutsch, Henry Mancini, Dimitri Tompkin, and of course, Bernard Herrmann, who wrote Psycho. If you don't know who those composers are, just know this. They are some of the most influential voices of classic Hollywood, which we've talked about. As John Williams is still composing to this very day, that means that he is the living bridge between our modern world, our modern films, and the world of classic Hollywood film scores. Not just in the 70s and 80s, but still now to this day. He is our direct link to all of that knowledge. He was actually there. As a pianist, he played on the main theme of Peter Gunn. He played piano in the film for West Side Story, on the film for To Kill a Mockingbird, Some Like It Hot, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and South Pacific. Are you a fan of any of those movies and their scores? Well, that's young Johnny Williams playing the piano on those recordings. And then from there, he started doing arrangements again. He got a job writing for television where he wrote music for 23 one-hour episodes a year. That's almost 20 minutes of music a week. While still playing in the orchestras, he wrote for Lost in Space, Gilligan's Island, so many others. He started conducting simply because things were moving so fast and he knew how he wanted it. He was protecting his music from, quote, lesser conductors. After that, he moved into scoring films. And it was mostly comedies throughout the 60s. But eventually, his relationship with TV producer Irwin Allen led him to have a career as the IT composer for disaster movies. Meanwhile, you have a young Steven Spielberg who was just graduating film school and getting his start making television episodes as a young hot director. And he started making his first movies and became enamored with the music of John Williams very early on. Here's Steven Spielberg discussing how he discovered John Williams and how they first met. The first time I ever heard John Williams was I was writing a screenplay and I would often put on soundtrack albums to inspire me. And I had gone to the store and I just picked up four or five soundtracks and I picked up the Reavers. Didn't know who John Williams was, but I had seen the movie and remembered how much I loved the music. And I began playing the music and I wrote the script with the accompaniment of John Williams. John's uh, music inspired a lot of the scenes I, I, had, I, I was currently writing. So I kind of made a promise to myself that if... I ever have the luck of getting a first feature, I would go and ask this guy, John Williams, to write it. And I got my first feature, Sugarland Express, and the first person I went to was John Williams. Here's John Williams on meeting Spielberg for the first time. Universal Studio, when they called me about a film, Sugarland Express, a young director who I'd never heard the of. The Sugarland Express was their first collaboration. What I remember was that it was arranged for me to go to Beverly Hills to have lunch with Stephen. He looked to be like about 18 years yeah. old. Within five minutes, I realized that from a historical point of view, he knew more about film music than I did. He started to tell me themes that I've written for The Reavers, which is a film I'd done a few years before. Something else, Cowboy, starts to sing them. I thought, my God, this kid has really done some homework on the music. I had already worked with William Wyler and Robert Altman and Martin Ritt, and they were all older than I was. And so I was, I was the kid, in a way, was working for these older people that I admired so much. Suddenly, this was a complete flip-flop, and I was working with somebody who was younger than I was, you know. So he was set apart by age and by a seeming contradiction in taste, where you expect him to be listening to only rock and roll records. It was very easy to talk to John about movies and about film music and about the history of music. And I think I explained to John that my mom was a concert pianist. 
and, uh, and that I'd been raised, you know, with serious classical music in my life. I had decided to rebel against the classical music by collecting soundtracks. So I just think that there was a, a kind of alchemy between us that I've never questioned, and I've never really looked at it very carefully because I, I tend not to look a gift horse in the mouth. Just feel very lucky that we've had an association spanning, I guess, now 43-something years. Mm. It's been a... It's been the most most um, generous and and fruitful collaboration I've ever had in my entire career. And thus, one of the greatest director-composer collaborations in film history was born. A few years prior, John Williams won his first Academy Award for arranging. There's that word again. He arranged the music for the film adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof in 1971. And while he was a very busy film composer in the early 70s, his wife Barbara suggested to him that he write a violin concerto. More on this later. She challenged him to write for an instrument that, was he, that he was very familiar with and pushed him with her belief that he would write something wonderful. In 1974, his world is absolutely stopped by a very, very sudden tragedy. Look, I've been a fan of John Williams all my life, and in uh, 2012, he gave this interview with the Film Academy that gave me pause, and I've been thinking about it quite a bit ever since. Here's a clip of John Williams talking about personal events that shape his music that I think was worth bringing up. Uh, the second question about uh, a personal thing in life that may affect what my work has been, and it's a very, it's a great question and I really don't know if this is the appropriate form, but I will give you a straight answer. When I was about 40 years old, I lost somebody very, very, very close to me unexpectedly. And before that point in my life, I didn't know what I was doing. But after that point in my writing, in my approach to music, and everything that I was doing, I felt clear about what it is I was trying to do and how I could do it with whatever small gift I may have been given. Mm -hmm. It was a, a huge emotional turning point in my life. Let's leave it there, but, but one that resonates with me still and taught me about who I was and what I was doing and what it meant. And this is a deeply emotional thing. And, and um, uh, in a way, that was the greatest gift ever given to me, if I can put it that way, by anyone. And so that's the best answer I can give you, and certainly a pivotal moment in my thinking and my living of my life and approaching the blank page, absolutely. I immediately knew that where to go with this emotionally. He lost someone very dear to him, he says. So many people may not know this, but when John Williams was my age, around 42, his wife of 18 years, Barbara Ruick, died very suddenly of a brain aneurysm. Suddenly, John Williams, he was a single father of three children, three teenagers. As a husband and father of a small child, this detail uh, really hits me. I've been thinking about it for years, and its meaning is more important to me now, of course, as a husband and father, but <clears throat> I can't imagine that loss. You heard it in his answer. It changed him. It, 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 uh, it changed his sense of who he was, seemingly, for the rest of his life. Barbara Ruick died in March of 1974. John Williams scored Jaws with the Universal Orchestra in March of 1975, one year later. Was he still grieving? I mean, we can't pretend to know. I mean, he wrote multiple projects in 1975, including some huge movies. He wrote Earthquake, The Towering Inferno, both disaster movies with dark scores, and The Iger Sanction, starring Clint Eastwood. But back to that violin concerto, he wrote and finished... This violin concerto, this concert piece, at the request of his late wife, a year after Jaws was released. Now, it's a very obscure piece by William Standards, and you're probably wondering why I'm bringing it up. But I've, it's because I've listened to it quite a bit, and, and it's just it's this other side of him that was happening at that time. And while it's melodic and shows his neoclassical style, which you can start really hearing in Jaws, the melody is actually really challenging. Uh, the tonality is very 20th century. Um, it is exciting, and at times it's even scary, and at other times it's, it's, uh, it's haunting and incredibly painful. 
I wouldn't call it a casual listening experience. But over the past few years, I've kind of become obsessed with it. Uh, his late wife requested that he write it. He didn't finish it until after Jaws was completed, until 1976. It didn't receive a debut until years later when he was very famous. Um, it's performed seldomly, but it is dedicated to his late wife. And when I listen to it, I get chills. Uh, last summer, my wife, uh, she bought us season tickets to the Hollywood Bowl, and we went to several concerts, including this big Labor Day weekend concert series that Williams does every year, where he plays a lot of his biggest movie hits. But there was another concert that we picked, and you guessed it, it was, it was Williams' violin concerto with a guest conductor and this incredible violinist named Gil Shaham. Anyway, the concert just gave me chills, and I have to give you this one detail. Sitting maybe 15 rows behind us was John Williams himself. He wasn't performing. He never went on stage. And while the conductor brought our attention to him at one point and he stood up and, and everyone cheered, he was clearly there to listen, to, to attend. You know, just as a sign of the time of the mid-70s, I just want to listen to some of the first movement of his violin concerto. Very challenging melody, but it's beautiful. For time, I'm going to skip ahead as the orchestra starts to really join in here. I'm skipping ahead. Here it comes. So this is just a bit of the first movement. It's complex, it's difficult, it's hauntingly beautiful. So, I mean, what does all this have to do with Jaws? Um, you know, I don't know. Is it a coincidence that the clarity of Jaws' score came after these events in his life? Um, that it marked a turning point in his professional career as well as his personal life. Honestly, we may never know. I mean, we're most likely not meant to know beyond the brief answer he gave to the Film Academy in 2012. But nevertheless, all of these details, when I studied them, from his schooling to his young adult life, humanized a man whose music I've admired my entire life. And it drove home this important point to me more than any other. While we take these seemingly bigger-than-life movies and their film scores for granted, they are the work of people. This is so famous. But these are people who struggle just like we do. People who have ups and downs. People who have great elation and, and great tragedy. Who have their own personal, professional, and creative journeys. The Soundtrack Show will continue after these messages. We return now to the Soundtrack Show. So as we've now illustrated, Jaws was a turning point for both Spielberg and Williams in their professional lives. It was uh, a watershed moment, if you'll forgive the pun. Sorry, just trying to lighten the mood here. Um, you know, I, we're winding down here, and this is just the introduction to the, to the analysis of Jaws, but we've talked about the shark a lot. But what I really want to drive home is this whole other side. It's the shark and that darkness, that motif... That, or excuse me, that ostinato, dun-dun-dun, that's just half the score of Jaws. You know, while the score is famous for that, it re it's really a balance between the darkness of the shark and the light of the human spirit. Maybe this is why I think they're connected, but maybe it's not for us to know. But John Williams knows how to be the shark. He is famously the shark. But what we also have to talk about with this movie is how he treats the human beings by contrast 
how the human spirit overcomes the darkness, and musically the incredible complexity that's mixed with really very, very simple uh, rhythmic ostinatos and, and melodies. Uh, the atonalism of the shark motif mixed with this swashbuckling adventure music that scores the crew of the orca as they hunt down this killer, which they now know is out to feast on tourists as a matter of the predator's territorialism. That's part of the plot. So lives are at stake. I want to play a little bit of this of this swashbuckling score so you can really hear something totally different from the very same movie in the score for Jaws. So there's the rhythmic ostinato, of course. Now listen to this. Wow. This is Jaws. And this is the emotional peak or pinnacle of Jaws. I mean, it's hard to believe that that's the same movie. That's the same movie as this. Let me go back. The boldness and simplicity of the shark's theme comes from a tremendous place of clarity, a clear idea of storytelling with the orchestra. Meanwhile, the pirate music is also bold in that it's quite old-fashioned in 1975. We're going to talk about this a lot next time. Uh, to my ears, this movie, Jaws, especially after those, that last cue that we played, is really the neoclassical score that predates Star Wars just two years later. Um, Obviously, not just chronologically, but stylistically. I mean, it's 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 a natural growth into Star Wars. For musical reasons as well as business reasons, there would be no Star Wars without Jaws, in my opinion. This is the beginning of the John Williams sound, a mixture of psycho and vertigo-like techniques from the 1960s, mixed with the sound of classic Hollywood bravado and this soaring melody. It's simple, melodic shapes, daringly simple, just like the shark motif, presented in high relief against this wonderful orchestrated arrangement and complexity in arrangement. Wonderful arrangements. And above all else, perfect storytelling. You care about these characters. The music, it's the right music for the right moments. Before we wrap up for the week, I wanted to respond to some listener feedback. This is from uh, Twitter, actually, from Eric, who wrote... Love the episode. He was talking about what's in the mix, uh, the episode that I that I did last week. But most pressing and perennial mix question unanswered. Why are dialogue and action volumes so poorly mixed that I need to keep a remote in hand when I watch at home? Help me, David W. Collins. You're my only hope. It's a great question. Thanks, Eric. Why is it so poorly mixed that you end up turning the volume up and down all the time during big action scenes when you're watching at home? Well, the answer lies in the context for which the material that you're listening to was mixed. You see, when you go to the movies, the dialogue is not actually the loudest thing you hear. It, it kind of sits at a comfortable level that is somewhat conversational. But there is plenty of room in the mix above it for louder sounds, sounds louder than the dialogue. This is referred to as dynamic range, the range from the lowest sounds to the loudest sounds. And if loudness is a scale from, say, 1 to 10, simply put, let's say that dialogue sits at about a 4 on that scale in a movie theater. Well, in that controlled environment, right, you're in a darkened theater with uh, acoustic treatment on the walls. If you want to shake the theater with subwoofers and blow us away with huge explosions, then sound mixers and the directors they answer to take advantage of that environment. And they use that loudness to convey something that's bigger than life, certainly bigger than conversational dialogue. Well, what works in a theater doesn't really work in the home, to your point, unless you're able to crank it away in your fancy home theater without worrying about your neighbors or waking your kids or your dog, etc. You generally want less dynamic range. So most movies nowadays are actually remixed for home video. 
for home video, let's say that the dialogue sits more at a six out of our scale of 10, which mean that, means that there's still room for big explosions or car chases, etc. but the dynamic range has been reduced or slightly squashed. It's not as big, but it's still there, right? Dialogue is still lower than those big moments. There's still that dynamic range that are there to provide you a, a satisfying impact in your home, home listening experience. And then there's TV broadcast standards, which have even less dynamic range than that. The difference between a big explosion on TV and conversational dialogue isn't actually that big at all. They're very, very close in, in actual loudness. So broadcast has very little dynamic range. So in your case, you're watching at home and you feel like you're constantly having to turn it, turn it down for the big scenes and then back up for the dialogue. Um, it sounds like the program material is too dynamic for your specific listening needs at home. So here's my advice. If you have a sound bar or a receiver or even some uh, smart TVs uh, most likely support this nowadays, I would look for a, a nighttime or a midnight sound mode, which basically compresses that dynamic range or the loudness of the soundtrack. This will help get the range under control and maybe be more suitable for you. But be aware that when big explosions go off and with that mode that uh, turned on, sometimes, depending on the material that you're watching, the action scenes then feel maybe quieter than everything else, right? Uh, so suddenly um, a, an explosion goes off or a big bass boom goes off and, and everything gets quieter for some reason. That's because that nighttime mode or compressor is working pretty darn hard. Anyway, thanks to all of you for writing in. Please be sure to send us feedback to the soundtrack show at HowStuffWorks.com. Send us some feedback on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundtrackShowHSW or on Twitter at SoundtrackHSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. When we come back next week, we're going to dive, <laughs> pun number three, into the Jaws score and really look at how these cues were constructed one by one, really get into the minutia of the movie, why this movie is a masterpiece in suspense, and why, thanks to John Williams' score, the shark is still working after over 40 years. Thank you. Thank you.